Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Stay ahead of the game and advance your career with continuous learning opportunities for Azure cloud professionals. So let you at your house learning as a lifestyle. Start your journey now on eduhouse.fi slash cloud pro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I thought I would give a brief gym update. I realize it's been some time since I last spoke about this. So for the past eight months, I've done a what's called a four-day split. So I go to the gym four days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And the old wisdom of to train hard you have to have to train hard. That's been very fitting for me. It, it took me a couple of years to realize what is training hard or harder than usual. And comparing to any of the gym sessions I did maybe two years ago, today they are light year apart. So just a few key lessons for me, just in case somebody else is perhaps thinking of hitting the gym today or this week. For me, the three lessons have been show up, put 80% effort week after week not 100%. Eat enough protein, and for me, that's about 200 grams per day. That's about seven ounces, I think. I did use Google for that. And mix it up. Change the gym programming every four weeks. That's that's the top bit there. So that's the latest update from here. All right, that sounds good. I think it's key to all type of workout or anything you want to do consistently in life. It's just make sure you have a long-term consistency. Um, you know, see the end goal, not as a goal, but as a journey. That's what works for me as well. When I go on my road bike, same thing. So that's nice. On my end, um, I realize like now during summer that I'm reminded of how lucky I am, uh, I am to be able to work remotely, which I've done now for eight or nine years, uh, where I get to really reap the benefits of, you know, this hybrid model or uh, remote model that I that I have. So I get to spend more time with the family, less time on the road in traffic delays and things like that. I get to plan my days really well and align my hours to what works best for my team, which is US-based and for my family. And now during summer, that means, for example, I can go mow the lawn, uh, take the bike down to the sea, which is about four minutes, take a short swim, or just enjoy the bumblebees and butterflies in the garden during an extended lunch break. And when we work in this digital landscape, I really like to disconnect and get analog for a little bit. So often I can combine these activities with my family as well. And that makes it, of course, even better. Still, I get a lot more work done and I'm a lot more efficient than I ever would be when I used to sit in an office and I had to commute back and forth. So I just wanted to kind of hit the drum for work from home and remote work. Organizations can hire talent worldwide now and, you know, looking beyond their traditional local regions. And I'm, you know, contemplating a lot on that, how fortunate I am to be able to work uh, in this way as well. Uh, so really nice. It's a good reflection, especially during these hot summer days to just take a ponder on, you know, the, the benefits of this model of, of working. So, yeah, that's nice. Really nice. That sounds awesome. I really like them working from home model. But at the same time, I I feel that within my company as, as a team, we try to meet in person maybe once a month just to sort of not really work together, but more like let's do breakfast, let's do lunch together, just catch up on things without teams, without phone calls, without set meetings. Uh, so community highlights, we have a couple again, and you can find the links in the show notes. 
The first one, this is a blog article from Jeffrey Apple on Microsoft Defender Threat Intelligence integrations with Microsoft Sentinel. I recall we did do an episode, I don't know which episode it was, but back in the day, we did do an episode on threat intelligence. And this is about now integrating that. Toby, did you have something from the community highlights as well? Yeah, something that I found uh, is from Zachary Cavanaugh in the Microsoft Tech community. Uh, and that is how do LLMs or large language models work with Vision AI? So that's about OCR, image and video analysis. So using natural language to fetch visual content in an image or video uh, without needing metadata or location. You can generate automatic and detailed descriptions of images using the model's knowledge of the world and also use verbal descriptions to search video content. So I think that's pretty cool. And just another kind of pin in the hat or a feather in the hat for how AI is changing a lot of things, including how we search for content and how we discover things that already exist. So AI making these LLMs uh, more aware of the world around us to really give us better insights. Really interesting read. So the, the links to both of these articles are, of course, in the show notes. Interesting stuff. So today we'll take Defender for APIs for a spin. So Microsoft has Microsoft Defender, Azure Defender, Windows Defender, Defender for Cloud. <laughs> so many things to defend. And, and today when we talk about Defender for APIs, it's a fairly constrained capability. It's in public preview, so you can just go up and, and, and spin it up today if you like. Toby, I know you're deep into APIs for sure. So have you had a chance to take Defender for APIs for a spin yet? I did take it for a spin. So I, I saw the announcement when it came out uh, as a preview and it's pretty nice. What I it's fully integrated into Defender for Cloud, so from there you can uh, you know go to your secure your APIs and then you can tackle it from there. And what I really like about this is not only that it's integrated into Defender for Cloud, but it's yet another layer of the onion, if you will, the security onion, where you have another layer of security for for awareness. So essentially, if you have an API in API management you can kind of onboard that to defend for APIs. So that will give you better visibility and, and security findings and recommendations for what, what you can do to better secure those APIs. So I did take it for a spin. I have used it. It's actually running now for one of the things I have in one of my subscriptions. And I get to see things like when was the last ping on the endpoint or when did someone reach out to that endpoint? When did someone make a GET request or a patch request or a POST request? If it did not happen in the last 30 days, you're going to get a flag saying this is actually not being used in the last month. It's going to flag whether it's authenticated or not. So some interesting insights connected to the usage of your uh, API, which kind of brings more visibility to them in in, in just another kind of layer of uh, of security. So that's that's kind of it. I have not take a deep dive into all the capabilities. I know about many of the capabilities, but I haven't experienced them. I am using it, but that's what I'm using. And then the recommendations that come comes after that, which I think we'll dive into as well. What about you? Yeah, I, I, I think I've gone down the same path. So I have it up and running. I've configured that. I've had a look at everything it exposes and, and tells me. 
but I'm perhaps not too ingrained with in utilizing this with all of the projects I'm working on, mostly because this is still in preview. But what I'm thinking now is that perhaps one of the key users for Defender for APIs, it will actually be IT operations people, not developers. Because too often I'm seeing environments that have a lot of custom code, which, which typically means a lot of custom APIs. And the IT ops personnel, they might have a nice governance model. Yeah, you have to do this and this and this, and you have to do authentication like that and authorization like that. But they might not have the domain expertise in understanding how those specific APIs actually work, how they are interconnected, and, and how they are secured. So I feel that Defender for APIs, perhaps not today fully, but hopefully in the future when it evolves, it will bring more tools for the operations people to understand what the developers have been building and are we securing those well enough. Sort of is my view now, having run this for a couple of weeks. And you also, also mentioned that it supports APIs published through API management. So keep in mind that Defender for APIs does not work directly with any other type of APIs without API management. So Azure Functions, Logic Apps, Web Apps, Docker Containers, you do not get the coverage from those APIs to Defender for APIs. You have to expose everything to API management and Defender for APIs goes then to API management to extract that wisdom from there. Yeah, and and, and by enabling that, like you can enable the Azure API management integration and then you you get all these API security recommendations and alerts in the Azure API management portal as well. So there's a, a good integration. Or if you're uh, hanging out in Defender for Cloud and head over to the recommendations area there, you can also get some extended information on how you can improve the APIs. Again, the, the ones that are published through API management. And you touched here on developers versus IT and you know, this is the way I see this is this is a Defender CSPM integration, which is uh, like a cloud security posture management integration. It, it does integrate with cloud security graph in the Defender cloud security posture management or CSPM for API uh, visibility and risk assessment. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so it does have a bunch of things ingrained and integrated in it that helps you. So to that point, yeah, 100% like security operations, uh, technical operations, IT operations, you know, whoever's operating and managing your cloud estate will probably take a look at this. And if you have a security team, they're probably going to be aware and staying on top of this. Developers, perhaps not so much. You usually have disconnected dev teams, or if you truly follow a DevOps or DevSecOps model, they're more integrated into operating what they actually build. And even so, I think it's more the operations staff looking into these things and the developers focusing on the logic of the code. And then you had the other side uh, of the team looking at how is that code going to get exposed? How are we going to protect that endpoint? How do we publish that? So a good point, but it, I, I really like this. And there's also a CM integration I know. So you can kind of integrate with all the security information event management that you get. So of course you can push it over to Sentinel, you can, yeah, or whatever CM system that you use. If you use something else, you can push it over to that perhaps as well. But I think Microsoft Sentinel is what most folks I've been talking to are using. 
So it's pretty interesting. There's a, a plethora of information that you can kind of uncover, but at its core, I still would say that Defender for API is pretty simple in terms of the usage. You onboard it, you set it up, and you get your API management endpoints listed or onboarded and say, all right, I want these to be connected to Defender for API. That's it. Then you get some added recommendations. You get some security recommendations in Defender for Cloud saying, oh, we found a couple of APIs that are not being used, or we found a couple of APIs that are unauthenticated, whatever it might be. It's going to come back and say, here's a bunch of security recommendations for you to take a look at, and then you can act on that. So it's going to you know, improve the inventory, the visibility of whatever you have, and provide you a bunch of recommendations on those security findings as well, because it does analyze your API security findings, including information about external unused or unauthenticated APIs, and then it's going to provide you recommendations on that. I, I really like that. But again, it's pretty simple. You can pretty quickly get started but by my experience and i i tried this only in one of my subscriptions that that holds quite a few different apis when i onboarded it it took a bit maybe up to an hour to get it set up and you know bring visibility and get everything connected but after that it's pretty pretty easy to get started agreed agreed and the api management requirement so what i did when i initially deployed this I didn't really have time to read the documentation because nobody has time for that. You just open Azure portal and start clicking away. So I already had an API management using the consumption tier, which is the serverless approach. I like it because it's super affordable and it spins up in two seconds. And I couldn't get this onboarded. So I had API management running. I had an API published. Everything worked in there. But in Defender for Cloud, when you onboard, for Defender for APIs, so you flip the switch into Azure Defender to get this capability on. Nothing happened, so I waited the the uh, suggested time of 50 minutes for something to happen. Why is it 50 minutes? My thinking is that there's somebody in the West Europe data center running a PowerShell script every 50 minutes, and they are hitting Enter every 50 minutes, and they didn't, or then it failed somehow, and nothing happened. And then I went back to the documentation and it clearly states the API management instance has to be a developer, basic, standard, or premium tier. Consumption tier, which is the fifth one, the greatest one, not supported. Okay. And the, the one you were using. <laughs> yes, the one I was using, not supported because it would be too easy. So I went back and I think I, I deployed a developer tier, which equals premium, but it's not for production use. And the downside of this is that um, instantiating one, provisioning one, takes easily 75 to 90 minutes because I think it's spinning up virtual machines in the back end and doing all sorts of configuration in there. But once this is done, it works. So, Toby, you mentioned you have this up and running for one of your APIs, and I, I'm imagining it's a REST API, right? Is it, is it something that, that has like one method or is it, is it something fairly complex? So I, I wouldn't say that it's complex, but I guess it depends on who's asking and, and who's answering. I've been developing since 2001, so I my perception of complex might differ from others. But like it's an API. I, I have two APIs onboarded right now through API management. And one of them is a project I started a couple of years ago, you know, just for fun. 
I started analyzing cryptos and building predictive algorithms for finding opportunities within cryptos, just kind of to play around with, you know, cloud scale analytics, like big data, billions of data points and, and all these things, which ties nicely into AI that's happening right now. When I started building that, AI wasn't a thing. So there's different capabilities now, but pointing case that has perhaps 60 or 70 different endpoints that are exposed. Some of them are authenticated. Some of them are not uh, because end users should also be able to hit the website and then the website can do an authenticated request on behalf of the user or the user can do like a client side request themselves, which is unauthenticated if it's only for some random metadata or, you know, the latest insights that you want to get from the API. So it's, I would say it's fairly complex, but it's also been built over many years. And it's pretty interesting to see the to see the insights. I don't have a lot of users on this thing because it's still protected. It's only a kind of a spare time project. So there's a couple of test users. There's some test automation running. And you know, every now and then I go in myself and, and that's it. So I'm not getting all the insights like, oh, there's someone trying to break into your API or someone is trying to hit it unauthenticated. But it, I do get all the visibility into it saying you have these unprotected endpoints or unauthenticated endpoints. These endpoints are not getting used, and these ones are getting used. So, fairly complex in that sense, but you know, not more than that. It's not production grade, so I I couldn't speak to how this would look in production in terms of you know, are you getting overloaded with data or insights? But th that's how I'm using it. Running on my API management are .NET apps running in various APIs that are exposed through API management, and that's it. So pretty simple setup, but pretty complex APIs, if you will. But the what bubbles up to me, like the security insights from Defend for API is super simple. So even if you have this complex code, complex API that's been built over years and years, the API management endpoints that I have are pretty simple. There's a couple of rules, a couple of routing, a couple of things that I do with the headers and whatever. But that's it, like the API management side of things are looking pretty simplistic. So Defender for API is very straight. Like you onboard it, you get it in, you start looking at the benefits and the insights, the security insights. That's it. So yeah, fair enough. And I, I feel that since you onboard this through API management, it's also easier in production environments because you do not have to tinker with the API itself. You don't have to worry about performance or telemetry or scalability or any of that because you're sort of going through API management instead of going directly with the API. For me, the test environment, super simple. So API management provisioned, the developer tier. I uh, deployed a simple web app-based API with .NET Core, the basic template you get from Visual Studio. That gives you the fixed weather forecast uh, information, like random forecast for the given day. Publish that in API management, no transformations, nothing fancy in there, just get it working, no authentication. And then when that's up and running, you go to Defender for Cloud, you enable Defender for APIs, you wait 50 minutes. And then what happens is you are getting a workbook called API Security in Preview. And then you can also go to Cloud Security Explorer to explore any of the findings. Or you can just go to recommendations and see sort of like the bulk list of recommendations that you're getting. So in essence, Defender for APIs is giving you three things. The workbook, 
it, it's it's fairly nice and you can modify that and whatnot. You get the KQL queries as well. Cloud Security Explorer, and I feel that's perhaps the most useful here because you can tie in those findings to other things like Let's see if we have any virtual machines or APIs or data endpoints available that might be at risk. And it bundles all of that together. So you don't specifically have to go and hunt for an unsecured API. You can just get everything and APIs will be part of that bunch. Yeah, and I, I really like the Cloud Security Explorer that you mentioned. And I, I took that for a spin as well when I started getting some signals in and I, I had my inventory. It was pretty easy. You go in there, you click the button. There's a dropdown pretty much in the Cloud Security Explorer so you can start exploring. You can just look in the left side. There's going to be APIs, or you can just search for APIs, uh, tick all the boxes, like show me all the API collections, API endpoints, and API management services I have. And then you just hit search if that's the scope you want. And you're going to get all the resources. Like your, in my case, I have an API management cryptos. I have an API management blog demo for a blog demo I did once. Clicking that then brings up all the recommendations. And here's a bunch of medium recommendations. Here are some lower recommendations, like medium severity and, and low severity. So some of them are like API management services should use a virtual network. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, API management minimum, minimum API version should be set to 2019, uh, 12.01 or higher which again makes sense. So I'm not doing that in some of my APIs that I have running because they've been there for some time. So really good insights. I agree with you. The, the Cloud Security Explorer is a really good thing to just start exploring what you have. And uh, and then the list of recommendations, yeah, it will give you kind of the same recommendations, but in, in the list of the uh, Defender for Cloud. So you get that in, in that side of the UI. And I just want to touch in that workbook that you mentioned as well. I absolutely love workbooks. Workbooks in Azure is what enabled me to really build comprehensive insights and an understanding of what went on when I was operating distributed environments and microservice systems that were disconnected. There were signals all over the place. There were billions uh, of transactions happening. It was impossible to kind of see that without building your own workbooks. I love this workbook. It will show you unhealthy API recommendations or high severity recommendations by status, uh, API protection status, if they're protected or not, and then you can kind of drill into that. I, I really like that as well. But like you said, the KQL is available. You can just edit and pick out the KQL if you just want to make your own queries, or you can extend the dashboard and save a copy of that. It will also get hardening recommendations, which I really like like audit diagnostic settings for selected resource type and API management call to API backend should be authenticated, like all the same kind of recommendations, but bubbling up now in the in the workbook. So again, like you said, you had these three areas where you can kind of get this insight. The workbooks for me is always a landing page. Like I come here, I take a look, I modify them a bit to bubble everything up on the overview page, but then you get the threat detection, uh, like top five alert types and how many alerts per day and you know the map of affected resources by location it's it's really comprehensive especially that it's a preview they've come a long way in exposing a lot of this information so defender for api like when you when you take a look at it it seems super simple you just onboard it and you onboard your whatever api collections you have in api management and that's it right everything else happens automatically what that does is it unlocks a lot of insights for you 
to start build an understanding of what you have, what recommendations you're going to get that might be impactful for how you operate and where you really need to start looking to take some action. I absolutely love this. Um, it's, it's again, showcasing how Microsoft is thinking with their Azure stuff. You just enable it. I want this protection. Click enable or onboard it. Put my API management collections in. Done. Then you get everything. Then it's up to you to take action on that. If you want the alerts, if you want to take action on the insights, that's that's on you. But getting started with this, super simple. The question I have, of course, which I think everyone does, as you usually brings up in every single episode when we talk about some, what is the price? What will this cost me if I enable it? Do we know that? We know for now it's free in the preview. But that's there's a good no price. price. <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, but there's no pricing announced. And for all of the other Defender for Cloud, Azure Defender capabilities, like Defender for DevOps, Defender for Storage, and so on, all of those have a set price. If I had to guess, and I really do not know, if I had to guess the eventual price when this becomes generally available will be along the lines of Defender for Key Vault, Defender for DNS. So something so small you don't really think twice, you just enable it. But obviously, uh, and I did learn my lesson here, Defender for Storage, that used to be $10 per storage account. Then it was changed to a different model. And I had that enabled for a specific production storage account that was getting 500 million transactions per week. And suddenly it becomes really costly. So you sort of have to still think how you're planning on using this because inevitably the pricing will be based on the amount of usage of that API, not just that it exists. Yeah, and I, I think that's really good insights, especially it's funny that you mentioned Defender for Storage, because I had exactly the same, and we had hundreds of millions of transactions happening, uh, you know, daily. It was a lot, and we went from like a twenty-five euro a month cost to, I think, four thousand a month, just for Defender for Storage, and you know, we found it pretty quickly, so we could kind of offboard Defender for Storage. We had to because it's not reasonable at the scale we were operating. It was not reasonable to to pay a couple of thousand bucks or euros extra a month just for that. Um, so it's it's good to be aware that if you enable it at scale, if you have big things happening, if you have big APIs, try to under, build an understanding of the, uh, the cost implication, because that is something you always have to take into consideration when you're building your cloud estate. So that's a good point. For the workbooks. I agree with you on the sentiment that it's highly useful. What I would like to see though, and this is not for Defender for APIs, this is for Azure Portal in general, is Copilot for KQL and Copilot for Workbooks. Something to help me out. Because often I'm finding a workbook like the one for, for uh, API security now. And there's something I don't really need, but I'd like to tweak it. I hit edits. I get like a two-pager KQL. I'm like, mm, yeah, I really don't <laughs> want to spend two hours on this now. I was just hoping for something to give me an easy way out from here. So, so I, I, I think here's an experimentation we can do until the next recording uh, mm -hmm. of, of the podcast is that we edit this workbook, we pick out one of the KQL queries, we throw that to ChatGPT or Azure OpenAI, one of the instances we have, mm -hmm. and we say, hey, explain this to me. 
and then say, I want to modify this to also include the high severity recommendations by state or whatever it might be and see if it can figure that out. Because I think I've, I've done that with PowerShell. I've done it with .NET. I've done it with a bunch of things. And YAML, I've done it with JSON formatting. I've thrown in a JSON document. I said, can you find the error here? Because there, there's a syntax error. I can't find it. My JSON parser couldn't find it. And ChatGPT is like, all right, found it. And you know, even wrote me some test code to validate it. So I would argue that there's a high probability that Azure OpenAI or ChatGPT already have an understanding of how KQL works, right? So if we take one of those queries, throw it in and say, hey, optimize this or include that type of data or where can I find this data or write me a KQL query that lists all the unhealthy APIs based on recommendations by severity from Defender API. I don't know, whatever. It might surprise us in what comes back. So I'll I'll take that as a kind of exercise or homework to do until the next episode, and let's see if I remember to uh, to talk about it then. Sounds good. That's an interesting idea. I I will give it a try as well. So sort of in summary, the idea of a defender for APIs is to raise awareness of APIs, typically in production, but they have to be published through API management. It ties in with Defender for Cloud and your theme typically Sentinel or perhaps something else. And the idea is that it's part of your overall security posture analysis. So it's more about visibility than having some sort of automated actions. It doesn't really change anything. It, it's giving you visibility and insights in what's happening with your API. That's sort of how I approach Defender for APIs from now on. Would you agree on this? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good summary. And it's just having it there is a comfort to me. Uh, setting up my alerts is is also helpful because I what I don't want is to every day go in and take a look what happened. I want to be proactively alerted when there's something that I really need to take action on. That's where false positives become a thing. So if you have a huge load of things happening, it might be difficult to understand you know which of these are false positives if you have a lot of alerts. So at one point, uh, not too long ago, like two years ago, I was getting maybe 600 or 700 alerts per day and based on 250,000 exceptions a week in a system, right? And if you if you get that amount of insights, you're just going to stop looking. So I really hope that's not going to happen here, but I don't see it happening either because you don't get alerts on every single hit on the endpoint. You get an alert on the security posture, and that's what I really like. So that that's how I'm going to use it. That's how I do use it, proactive alerts take action, secure the resources. Sounds good. Alrighty, I think we are up for the unexpected question. Toby, I trust you have a question for me. I do have a question. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this uh, the other day. Uh, what fictional character is amazing in their book or show or movie, but would be really insufferable if you had to deal with them in a mundane, everyday situation? So I'm I'm Finnish by nature, and I don't really like situations that are too peoply. I'm I'm fine <laughs> by myself quite often, uh, but excluding that trait in me, uh, I'm thinking John Wick. He would probably be insufferable <laughs> in real life. You would ask him, "Would you like to have some coffee?" And he would say, "Yeah." 
and anything to go with the coffee. But Jason Bourne, I really like the movies. Uh, would be an interesting experience, though. You, you, you would ask your friend who would be Jason Bourne, hey, can you, can you come by the grocery store when you're on our way here to, to the barbecue? He would say, I can run three miles in flat 12 minutes. Yeah, nobody cares. Just go to the store. Get <laughs> Will you make milk. the barbecue or not, man? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that would be interesting, but it would also be insufferable after the two first days, I think. It's also it, it would also be, especially with Jason Bourne, it would also be a very interesting situation because he always has a sniper shooting for him or like a car <laughs> flying over his head or an, a bomb yep. detonating or whatever. So that barbecue, it's going to be a really interesting barbecue. I'd, I'd love to attend from a distance just to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Alrighty. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. All right. See you then.